This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Mitch and I are at this museum for microbes called Microbia in Amsterdam. And we're looking at this one part of the museum where these little ants are farming fungus. And you can see them. It's almost like they're in a little pool. (laughs) One of them escaped, oh no. They have a glass dome in the center of a shallow pool, so the ants can't escape, though one did escape. And they're taking leaves, cutting them, and then putting them together to farm, to make fungus to eat. And I, this is so cool to watch. I absolutely have to learn more about this. So let's talk about it, shall we? everybody, welcome to Little Curiosities. I'm your host, Kendall Long, and you might remember me from the Bachelor franchise. I was the weird taxidermy girl, but what a lot of people don't know is that the reason why I collect taxidermy is because I study zoology, botany, entomology, and pretty much everything that has to do with the natural world. And that's why I started this podcast, because it's about all the things that spark curiosity in me. And this is really something that I love doing. I absolutely love researching and finding new topics to discuss with all of you listeners. This episode is something that has sparked my curiosity for quite some time. And like you heard in the spark in the beginning of the episode, I went to a museum in Amsterdam and saw these amazing leafcutter ants. It was so cool. It was suspended over this water moat. And they were just hacking away at the leaves. And you can get a really up-close look at them. It blew my mind, and I thought I must know more, so I studied a bunch for this episode. There are so many animals that know how to farm. It blew my mind. I had no idea that these animals existed, but I'm going to dive into just a few of them today. And hopefully your minds are blown just as much as mine was when I found out about all of these animals. Really remarkable that they are organized enough to make their own food. Humans have actually been farming for around 12,000 years, and there are a lot of benefits from farming. For one, isn't it great that we can have apples any time of year? Not only apples, but broccoli, cantaloupe, spinach. We can have pretty much any food we can think of at any time of year, no matter what the season, no matter if it's winter or summer. And I think that's something we really take for granted the availability of food to us. And it had to do with going way, way back when our ancestors decided to settle in one place instead of following a migrating herd. Migrating herds are unpredictable, plus it takes a lot of time and energy to follow a herd around all throughout the year. You have to pack up your entire home and supplies and move it from one place to another, which really cut us back a lot in the social department. So because we were able to settle in one place, we were able to not only ensure a steady food supply, which was important for expanding our population, but it also enabled us to develop complex societies. 
In a very strong way, we owe being human, at least the humans that we know ourselves to be today, to farming and agriculture, because without it, would we be able to be as complex as we are? I don't think so. So humans aren't the only species that know how to farm. And surprisingly, a lot of them have been farming a lot longer than we have. You know the little leafcutter ants that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode? They have been farming fungi and rainforests in South America for over 60 million years. Oh, so much longer than humans have. They probably have a lot of little gardening secrets and can probably keep a plant alive way longer than I can. Contrary to what you might be thinking, leafcutter ants don't actually eat leaves. They use leaves to feed to their crop, and their crop is a fungus that they cultivate themselves inside of their ant colonies. In fact, this fungus garden is not only their food supply, but it's their actual home. So what they do is they use decomposing leaves that they'll cut and collect themselves, chew them up into mulch, and use them to fertilize their fungus. They will then feed this fungus to themselves and their larvae. And leafcutter ants are basically made for this job. They have these mandibles that are serrated like steak knives, and these specially adapted jaws that saw off pieces of plants. When they saw these plants, they make this high-pitched sound that's vibration causes the leaves to stiffen up, making them easier to cut. How do they evolve to make that happen? I was listening to a video of a leafcutter ant going at it, and you can actually hear them, almost like little chainsaws, just vibrating away. And the chainsaw-like mandibles vibrate at a thousand times per second. They're also one of the strongest animals on Earth relative to their size. We knew ants were strong, but did you know that a single ant can carry leaf that is 50 times their own weight? That's basically like a human carrying a minivan car. Also, their speed is the equivalent of us running as fast as Usain Bolt. So they're kind of like little superheroes. This fungus that the ants cultivate depend on the ants to thrive. So the ants will provide all the food the fungus needs. They'll even select the leaves the fungus prefers. I don't know, maybe they can speak leaf and they're like, hey, what do you want for breakfast today? And the fungus is like, you know those hazelnut leaves you brought yesterday? Those were great. Get me some of those. Also, on a side note, they don't only eat leaves. Leafcutter ants will also harvest other flowers and different kinds of plants. The ants also secrete an antibiotic-producing bacteria to kill off bad bacteria and parasites and other mold that could be found growing on the rotting leaves, which is also competition for the fungus. So they're trying to get rid of competition so their fungus can thrive. Isn't it fascinating that this antibiotic the ants produce is like a weed killer? When I said they were literally made to do this job, I really meant it. In a lot of ways, the fungus depends on the ants to thrive, much like a lot of vegetables depend on humans to thrive. For example, corn. I was looking this up and I didn't know this. Contemporary corn can't survive without people because they can't disperse their own seeds. They need us to take off that husk, that green husk that hugs the corn like a little straight jacket. Only when the husk is removed and the golden kernels exposed can they actually sprout. 
little fun side science experiment if you want to sprout corn yourself. I looked this up and it said you can get a corn from a grocery store, remove the husk, and then fill a dish with about one inch of water and then place the corn cob in the water and then place this in a sunny spot. And you can watch and admire as it grows. It should grow within a few days and you'll begin to see little shoots sprouting upwards. It's like a little corn garden. Also important to note that the corn you want to grow should not be cooked or slathered in butter. Okay, enough about corn. Back to leafcutter ants. Leafcutter ant colonies can house up to 10 million workers. The biggest nests can have thousands of chambers. They're kind of like really elaborate underground mansions, and quite literally like an underground mansion, because these colonies can be anywhere from 320 to, get this, 6,460 square feet. Good luck getting a home that big in Los Angeles. Every single one of these ants in the colony is designated with a job. There are workers, soldiers, trash collectors, one single egg-laying queen, and something called a minim ant. I had no idea what kind of ant this was. I hadn't heard of them before when studying ants, but what a minim ant does is that it rides on leaves, plucking off dangerous parasites while en route to the colony. It's quite literally a leaf bodyguard, and it also protects the leaf from other insects, such as flies and wasps, who see that leaf as a nice prize. What jerks for trying to steal the ant's hard work? There are 47 known species of leafcutter ant, all more adorable than the next. And according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, leafcutter ants actually have contributed greatly to scientific advancements in pharmaceuticals and clean energy alternatives. So it looks like we still have a lot to learn from these little hard workers. It also turns out that leafcutter ants aren't the only kinds of ants that farm. Because yes, I did find myself going deeper and deeper into that ant colony of knowledge. And it turns out that ants farm aphids. Have you ever seen that movie Ants that came out in the late 90s when CGI was really having its heyday? There was a scene in that movie where the worker ant Z and another soldier ant named Weaver are at a bar in the colony drinking aphid beer, which looks like a green swirl with eyes poking out from the bottom. And the scene goes a little something like this. The soldier ant weaver says, don't you want your aphid beer? And worker Z replies, call me crazy, but I have a thing about drinking from the anus of another creature. <laughs> yeah, the movie's based on reality. There are several ant species that have a symbiotic relationship with aphids. And just like the movie ants, they do drink aphid juice and yes, it comes from the aphids. But aphids secrete a waste product called honeydew, and ants go absolutely crazy for this stuff. It's a good sugary meal that gives the ants energy, kind of like an energy drink, if an energy drink came from a butt. Ants love this honeydew so much, they farm aphids to keep it in constant supply. I was curious, how do ants farm aphids? Is it similar to how we farm cows or sheep or chickens? And the answer is actually exactly how we farm animals. And in this case, it's like how we farm sheep. Ants will herd aphids to the juiciest parts of the plants and then protect them from predators like ladybugs. When I was a kid, the rose bushes in our backyard were just packed with aphids. So I'd go with my mom to the gardening center and she'd let me pick out 
one of those cardboard boxes in a tiny fridge. And inside that cardboard box were just so many ladybugs. We'd take it home and release it upon all of the aphids in our rose garden. It's such a core memory for me because I remember just observing all of the little ladybugs eating the aphids and thinking, I wonder how an aphid tastes. <laughs> it's a weird thought to have, but I was just curious because they looked so psyched to be eating these aphids. So maybe I should give honeydew a try. If you want to know how much these ants love these aphids, they will carry them into their nests at night and for winter to keep them warm. Some worker ants will actually have specifically specialized shepherding jobs for caring for the aphids. I don't know about you, but that sure as heck sounds like farming to me. It's clear that these ants want these aphids around, and just like cows, in return, the ants can milk the aphids of honeydew. How does an ant milk an aphid? Are there little udders? <laughs> it turns out, no, unfortunately not. The ant will actually stroke the aphid with its antenna, coaxing them to secrete the honeydew, which is then eaten by the ant. The more I talk about this, the less I want to try honeydew. There's a reason why they call it honeydew right? Aphids are in fact so prized that when ants move their colony to a new location, they'll carry an aphid egg with them. That way, they can begin a new herd and maintain their supply. Exactly how long have ants been farming aphids? The truth is, they've been farming way longer than humans. Humans have been farming around 12,000 years, while these ants have been farming aphids around 50 million years. They got us beat for sure. Okay, so ants have been farming for quite a while, but besides ants and humans, are there any other animals that have farmed? I needed more species to fill this episode. It couldn't just be ants and humans, and I was not disappointed. In my search to find animal farmers, I came across a crab. And it's safe to say that this just might be my favorite type of crustacean yet. It's called a yeti crab. A yeti crab looks just like its name, if a yeti and a crab had a baby, you'd get a yeti crab. These crabs are all white because there's no color pigment present where they reside, which is solely in the dark depths of the ocean. Also, as a result of living mainly in darkness, their eyes aren't fully developed, which makes the crab virtually blind. It truly is a shame they can't see each other because they have these big, beautiful, hairy-looking claws. Hence the name Yeti Crab, because they really do look like big Yeti arms. It's these hairy arms that is the key to their farming. Why? Because Yeti Crabs grow their crop on their long, hairy arms. What grows on these arms, you may ask? Bacteria. The Yeti Crab will grow this bacteria on its arms, and how it gets it to grow is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. They'll take their arms and wave them over cold seeps. Cold seeps are areas where hydrogen sulfide and methane escape from the ocean floor, and this feeds the bacteria and allows it to grow on those beautiful hairy arms. The Yeti crab waves its arms as if conducting an orchestra, and it does this for a reason. It's thought that because the yeti crab lives so deep below the surface, around 1,000 feet deep, there's no sunlight. So because of that, hydrogen sulfide and methane fuels the bacteria to grow instead of the sun. Scientists believe that the yeti crab performs this type of dance to provide the bacteria with both oxygen from the ocean water and methane and sulfide from the sea. 
It's thought that if the yeti crab just sat there, then the bacteria would not grow because it wouldn't have either resource. And I, for one, am very entertained by the yeti crab's dance. When the yeti crab's arm farm has grown enough of its crop, it will just munch away. I picture it like when you put your hand in that bag of Cheetos and there's all that cheesy residue and you just lick it off. I think that's kind of like how a yeti crab eats its bacteria. Gross. The yeti crab isn't the only sea creature that has been observed farming. Not only does this next animal farm, it is also believed to have domesticated another animal, very much like how we domesticated cats, dogs, sheep, chicken, bees, the list goes on. Introducing the long fin damselfish. Damselfish are known for their vibrant colors. They vary from red, yellow, and blue. My favorite one is a bright yellow damselfish, and it looks like it has some sort of blue mohawk. And get this, scientists believe that this can be the first non-human example of a vertebrate species that has domesticated other animals. Exactly what animal have these little swimming beauties domesticated? To get to that, you first have to know how they farm. So these damselfish tend to algae farms that they grow on coral reefs. They fiercely protect them from all creatures except for one little tiny shrimp called mysis shrimp. Ironically, these are shrimps that you can find very commonly in pet stores when you're in the aquarium section. They're usually dried or in those little cubes in the freezer section. Fish like eating these guys, but not the damselfish. That's because the damselfish get a lot more benefit from keeping these shrimp alive than eating them, because this shrimp's doo-doo acts as a form of natural fertilizer for the longfin damselfish's allergy patch. Over time, the damselfish must have noticed the benefits of the mysis shrimp and their thriving algae gardens and let them stick around. And like I said before, these shrimp are a very common food source for other fish, so damselfish will help protect them in exchange for their fertilizer. Mysis shrimp have become so dependent on the damselfish's protection that you seldom find them anywhere else in the coral reef system. I see this symbiotic relationship like wolves and how they became reliant on humans for food, and then they became the dogs we know today. I have a weenie dog named Pistachio, and it's really difficult to picture that he was once a wolf. He's definitely changed a lot since then. He's kind of like if a wolf was a hot dog. And let me tell you, he is definitely reliant on me for food. Over time, the damselfish and mysis shrimp formed something called a commensal relationship. A commensal relationship is when one species benefits from the other without harming it. Let's give it up to all of those moms out there. My little goddaughter is the cutest thing in the world, but let me tell you, that bundle of joy keeps her mama busy. And at the end of the day, the one thing my friend is craving is a good night's rest. And I know exactly what to get her as a gift, Brooke Linen Sheets. Because we all know that after conquering a day of motherhood, she and all those other mothers out there, whether new mothers, grandmothers, or any other mother in your life, have all earned the best of the best. So let's give them the gift they will love for years to come. Brooklinen makes award-winning bedding that is perfect for every occasion. Whether moving, celebrating your favorite newlyweds, or treating yourself, let Brooklinen's cozy bedding, towels, and other home essentials be the gift that keeps on giving all day and all night. 
I just treated myself to some Brooklinen sheets for our new home in Germany, and I am in love. Brooklinen's best-selling Luxe Satin Sheets have a buttery soft feel that feels so good when you just cuddle in bed and a luxurious finish that is great for all types of sleepers. Looking for a natural option? Brooklinen's latest launch features an organic collection, which I am all about. I love organic. Check out their site to learn all about their different styles of sheets and find your perfect match, just like I did. After I've been sleeping with Brooklinen sheets, I honestly get the hype. They have really turned our new apartment abroad in Germany into a home because every morning I wake up, I feel like I got all the rest that I needed. I was just out of town for over a week, and the first thing I said to my fiancé Mitch on the plane ride home was, I can't wait to get back to my own bed, and Brooklinen is 100% of the reason why I miss my bed so much. What are you waiting for? Get to brooklinen.com to gift yourself or your loved ones the rest they deserve. First timer, get 15% off your first purchase, and don't forget to sign up for emails to keep up to date on exclusive offers, new products, and much more. Shop in-store or visit brooklinen.com for all things comfort. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N dot C-O-M for best in-class everything for your best home. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Okie dokie, so I am taking us out of the depths of the ocean and bringing us back on land and revisiting a type of farming that I mentioned earlier with the ant fungus farmers. Because ants, as it turns out, aren't the only little buggers that farm fungus. There is a beetle called the ambrosia beetle. Ambrosia beetles look like ants wearing hoodies. It sounds like a weird description, but if you look them up, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And initially, it was thought that ambrosia beetles ate the wood that they bore in, but that's not the case. They grow and cultivate a fungus. And if you're thinking ambrosia sounds kind of familiar, then you are a Greek history buff because ambrosia comes from the Greek word meaning immortality. In Greek and Roman mythology, only immortal gods and goddesses could eat ambrosia. It was believed to bestow immortality on anyone who consumed it. 
If that still isn't ringing a bell, then you must know about the Greek myth Achilles, where Achilles' mother, Thetis, anointed him with ambrosia when he was born and passed him through flames so all the mortal elements of his body would be consumed and destroyed by fire, which sounds like a scary thing for a mom to do to her baby, but it kind of worked until his father came in and found out and tried to stop her, and this caused Achilles' mom to get angry. She left without managing to immortalize his heel, hence the reason why he has that one vulnerable part of his body, the Achilles heel. First of all, why did Achilles' mom name him after the one weak part in his body? I thought that was always odd. And also, you think the Achilles is something that when it's hurt, it should be no big deal, and everyone's, oh man, Achilles, like, he died because of that? That was a weak move. But in reality, I used to run track and cross country, and I used to have micro tears on my Achilles tendon, so much so that when I ran, it felt like I was running on clouds, which wasn't good because it meant that I was losing sensation in my Achilles and my feet, and so I had to stop running, and I also lost my track scholarship that way, so my Achilles was my weakness as well. But don't worry, I ended up turning out okay. <laughs> also, little side fact, ambrosia is a name for a dessert made with oranges and shredded coconut, which sounds absolutely delicious, but unfortunately it's not what these ambrosia beetles are eating, nor are they immortal. The real story is that when these beetles were observed around 200 years ago, eating this white mysterious substance, they had no idea what it was. So they called it ambrosia because it seemed like it was some nectar from the gods, apparently. And it was only later that they found out it was a fungus and they were cultivating it themselves. So I think it's even more fascinating that they ended up farming as opposed to it being some mysterious substance that came from the gods. Just me? No? Is that only me? Dessert and Greek myths aside, I think the way the ambrosia beetle farms is pretty dang neat. Ambrosia beetles don't want just any tree when they're looking for a tree to farm their ambrosia or their fungus. They like to use dead or decaying trees, and they build tunnels in the wood, and this is where they produce their offspring and rear their young. Why do they like decaying trees and not fresh trees? You'd think they'd want to have fresh trees in order to rear their young. There's something about the smell of a stressed or dying tree that really attracts ambrosia beetles. And the main reason behind this is because these kinds of trees have more ethanol. Ethanol is a type of alcohol that's produced naturally by trees and plants when they're rotting or they're dying. It's the reason why we have wine or cider or any other alcohol that we also have a taste for. These beetles just like their trees boozy. To a little ambrosia beetle, the smell of ethanol means that conditions are good and ripe and ready for growing fungus because fungus don't depend on chlorophyll from the sun like many other plants. They're actually more closely related to animals. They too have to obtain their food and nutrients and glucose from outside sources. So they're not like a plant that can just sit there sunbathing, just like SpongeBob SquarePants that was saying photosynthesis, photosynthesis. They have to happen upon their food from the use of fungal spores that are literally everywhere in the air that we breathe. Right now, at this very moment, if you take a deep breath in, 
You for sure have some form of fungal spore inside your lungs at this very moment. But don't worry, you won't die. But that's the reason why when you leave your food out, even for the fraction of a second, you'll get all kinds of different mold on it because there's so many different kinds of fungus out there in the air that we breathe. It's cool to think about. Or it's terrifying to think about. All right, but back to the ambrosia beetle and how they go about their farming business. Whenever an ambrosia beetle moves, they bring their fungus with them. And they do this with these specialized organs called mycangia. They look like little backpacks, but they're more so pockets wedged between its thorax and abdomen. When it's time for an ambrosia beetle to move on to a new tree, they will scrape their backs along this fungus, collecting some of it in those specialized pockets and they'll go onward to a new ripe ethanol tree where they will then burrow deep in its rotten center thus getting that fungus all over that yummy ethanol rich goodness where it can grow yet again. If you want to get an idea of what a tree looks like once it's infested by ambrosia beetles, I looked it up on the internet. It literally looks like a tree with all these wood spaghetti-like spouts popping out all over. So the ambrosia beetle must bore deep into the tree and then push out all of the wood that's in its way. Who said that bugs couldn't create art of their own? When I initially started researching the leafcutter ant and how they farmed fungus, I was really surprised to find that there's multiple different insects that do this. Not only the ambrosia beetle that I just mentioned, but there's another insect that has learned to cultivate fungus, and that is termites. I saw an article that talked about a termite fossil that was found, and when they tested how old this fossil was, they found out that it was 25 million years old. So termites have also been farming fungus for a very long time, much longer than humans have been farming anything, really. So much like the leafcutter ant, Termites will feed their fungus by pre-chewing plant material that they can't eat themselves. So these termites, just like the leafcutter ants, can't digest this leaf matter. They're only chewing it in order for their fungus to thrive. Then they wait, tick-tock, tick-tock, for these large mushrooms to grow so they can eat them. And they don't only eat these large mushrooms. The interesting thing is that they also eat the plant material that the fungus converts to a now digestible form of food. So technically the plant material is chewed and or eaten three times because the termites will chew the leaves, the fungus will then eat it themselves, digest it, and then it will be eaten again by these termites. Sounds very resourceful. No bit of these leaves are being wasted just like other symbiotic animal farming species that we've seen in this episode, this fungus only grows when cultivated. So this fungus really does depend on these termites. On a research side note, when a termite finds a parasitic fungus trying to infringe on its crop, it will bury it alive. The reason why it will do this is because it creates an oxygen-starved environment, so the weedy fungus ends up dying from lack of oxygen. And yes, I said that fungus need oxygen, not carbon dioxide, to survive. Much like humans and other animals, they take in oxygen and then release CO2 into the atmosphere. Another reason why they are more closely associated with animals than plants. I think being buried alive is the most terrifying way to meet your demise. So these termites are definitely not messing around when it comes to protecting the fungus that they cherish so lovingly. 
and I don't blame them. Mushrooms are great. Not saying I would necessarily kill for mushrooms, but I did happen to make a very delicious oyster mushroom type chicken nugget. It's like a vegan chicken nugget. I dipped it in this batter and air fried it. Ugh, it was so good. So good, I might kill for it. Not really. Because I'm a naturally curious cookie, I had to know how these termites knew the difference between different fungus. They have really poor eyesight, so they're not looking at this fungus and saying, hey, you don't look like you belong here. The truth is that termites actually can smell it, but they don't smell the same way that you and I do. Mostly because insects don't have lungs, they actually breathe through holes in their body. That is a completely different topic for another episode. I can talk about that all day. But for now, the one thing you need to know about insects is that they have sensing organs. Not nostrils or noses like we have, but they have antenna. And with these antenna, they can detect odor particles. So they get to do a little feely on the fungus, and they know if it's a good fungus or a bad fungus. And if it's a bad fungus, they bury that sucker alive. I used to live in a place that had termites, and I remember every summer when it got super hot, I live in Los Angeles, so it gets scorching here, they would try to seek refuge in my home by accessing my windows. They would squeeze their way through my screen or some hole in the foundation somewhere. I have no idea how they mostly got in, and they would climb on my curtains, and they'd do this thing where they detach their wings and then just hang out. A lot of them would die in the crevice between my windowsill and my window. I used to feel really bad about it. And I did look up how to get rid of termites. If you wet a piece of cardboard, they will swarm to that sucker like bees to honey. Did I just invent a new phrase? Bees to honey, termites to wet cardboard. I can see it catching on. Okay, so that concludes this episode of Little Curiosities. I found this episode to be so fun to research because that spark of curiosity was something that I saw in person, and I love when I see these things in the real world. It sparks that curiosity, and I can research the heck out of it. I find out so many things that I never knew existed. Who knew that so many species farmed? I almost thought that humans were alone in that endeavor. But it's cool to think that we are not the only ones out there that have agriculture. And not only that, but they have been at it way, way longer than we have. So really, we're catching up to them. If you liked this episode, please share to anyone and everyone. It's really cool to see how this community grows. If you have something to say about this episode, please leave a review. I absolutely love reading them. And if you would like to be a part of these episodes, please pay attention to my Instagram page, It's Kendall Long. I will often post a little hint as to what the next episode is going to be, and that is where you come in. I love, love, love incorporating your thoughts, comments, and really, if there is something that I read that sparks curiosity in me, I will add it to this episode. So I'm always loving your feedback, always loving your ideas. Don't forget to subscribe because you don't want to miss some random information that you can blurt out next time you're on a date. Or maybe next time you have dinner with your family and you remember that weird fact about potatoes. Because there's a lot to say about potatoes, and I'll save that for a future episode. That's all for me. Until next time. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q-Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Ryan Countshouse. Edited by Will Tendy. 
Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Are you ready for the ultimate Love Island experience? Join us on After the Island. We're going back to where it all began, Fiji. Love Island USA Season 5 is making a splash on Peacock right now. And guess what? Your favorite recap show is back too. Welcome to After the Island. Join us as real-life besties and co-hosts, Elizabeth and Alex, as we deep dive into each sizzling episode of Love Island USA. We'll spill the tea, interview contestants, answer fan questions, and give you unprecedented behind-the-scenes access to the wildly popular world of Love Island. Don't miss a single moment of the drama, romance, and unforgettable island vibes. Listen to After the Island on any streaming platform.